Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Morning, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying this is the word of the Lord, and we invite you together uh, to respond. Thanks be to God. You can follow along with the scripture reading on the screens to my right and to my left. Uh, This morning's reading comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 34. Bear with me. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we went by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim you to the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put, he put them inter, into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what, mu what must we do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be yeah. to God. Amen. Well, thank you, Cody. You guys can grab a seat. If I have a chance to meet you, my name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my honor and privilege to open up God's Word for us. If you're in Kingdom Kids Classroom 3, you guys can head to the door and meet your teachers there. Um, props to Cody for not only reading a lengthy passage, but also correctly pronouncing all the city names. So, well done there. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it. Yeah, we can give Cody a round of applause for sure. Well done there. Well, if you need to refresh your cough or anything, feel free to do so, but we're, uh, we're eager to, to jump into God's Word this morning. Uh, we are in a little vision series here for the month of January. So last week, we looked at the idea of worship, right? It's front and center in our mission statement here that we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus. So we talked about how worship is an all-of-life inevitable experience for us as human beings and what it means to really and truly worship God and do that through His Son, Jesus, who's gain salvation for us. And so that's where we started last week. This week, I want to talk about the idea of mission. Now, part of the Christian life, both corporately as the church and also individually as members that make it up, uh, is that we're called to participate in the mission of God. I think it's pretty clear in Scripture that this is an aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I mean, after all, Jesus' final words after everything that had taken place, after his perfect life, his crucifixion, then his resurrection three days later, before he ascends into heaven, he gives the Great Commission. Let me just remind you what the Great Commission is from Matthew 28. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Then if you turn the page a little bit, you look at the book of Acts, and before his ascension there, he tells his followers that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These are the marching orders that King Jesus has left us. This is what he has directed his people to do. But if we're being honest this morning about this concept of mission, we have a hard time with this, don't we? I'm willing to bet that all of us in this room are intimidated by this idea in some way, shape, or form. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you might be brand new to all of this. In fact, there's some data to back this up. Christianity Today uh, did a study on evangelism last year. And they reported statistics on how the church in general was engaging with this issue. So here's what their survey said. So 64% of Christians who were surveyed agreed with this statement. I believe that every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. Okay, so statistically, two-thirds of us in this room would agree with that statement. Now, I could press back on that a little bit, right? Maybe we should, in light of what we just read, pause there. But I actually want to get to the next stat, because this is the one that's more alarming. Only 19% agreed with this statement. I actively seek or create opportunities to share my faith. So two-thirds of us are saying, we know we should be doing this, but less than one in five of us are actually thinking strategically about how we can share our faith with others. 
Now, I'm not sure if you feel that gap. Do you feel that gap at all in your own life? Uh, But whatever that gap hits you, the reality is we are called to bear witness to the gospel. We are called to go and to make disciples, but if only 19% of us are thinking about how to do this, something's off, right? Something has gone awry in our following, in our discipleship of Jesus. But here's the thing. I don't think that statistic is because we don't care. I don't think, if I'm giving us the benefit of the doubt here, that it's a lack of desire. I'm guessing that all of us, of course, would love to see our friends, our family, the people around us come to know Jesus, wouldn't we? I mean, we've experienced this ourselves. We want that overflow to spill over into them. However, the reality still is there that we don't often do it. And I think the reason is this. I think we're just intimidated. We feel inadequate. We just don't know where to start. Anybody feel that tension in their own life? We just don't know how to begin taking the gospel to the people around us. And can we be honest, quite frankly, it's a little awkward, isn't it? I mean, once you bring up Jesus in a conversation, that's sort of the point of no return in a friendship, isn't it? It's like, all right, we finally have broken the seal on this, and now we have to talk about it. Right? It can just be awkward. We don't really know where to begin. So what I want us to do today is I want us to look at Acts 16, what Cody read for us. And what I want us to see is how is it that the gospel goes into a place where there are no Christians and starts saving people? How is the mission of God accomplished in a city like Philippi where there's this crazy trajectory and crazy stories of people joining the very first church that would be planted there? And as we do that, I want us to actually take the pressure off a little bit and get a much bigger vision for what God is doing. And so as we look at Acts 16, here's the main idea I think this text is going to lead us to. God's mission to save a diverse people is accomplished through divine encounters and opportunities to share the gospel. It's simply that. God's mission to save a diverse people is accomplished through divine encounters and opportunities to share the gospel. And specifically, as we walk through these verses, I want to look at three different aspects of the mission. I want to see, first of all, that the mission is directed by God. Secondly, that it's driven by these divine encounters. And then thirdly, that it's defined by unity and diversity. So that's what I think the text is going to lead us to today. Before we jump into those points, let's pause and let's pray. And let's ask the Lord to ready our hearts to hear from him. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you that you have come on a rescue mission to seek and save those who were lost, like those of us who are here in this room. Uh, We thank you that this mission is your mission, that this is not something we're called to just go and do on our own, but you are the king, this is your kingdom, you are the one who brings this about. Thank you that that is true for us. This morning, wherever we might feel inadequate, wherever we might have questions that we just feel like we can't answer, wherever we don't know where to start, would you encourage us from your word that every single one of us can participate in this? That you're inviting us to engage in important conversations with our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, and that we're called to point them to the hope that has saved us in this room. Lord, I pray for those in this room who may not know where they're at with you. They might have questions. May you use your word to communicate the truth of the gospel. And may each and every one of us leave this place with a greater worship of you, filled with gratitude and ready to spill out into the world the good news of Jesus. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond to your word. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to see is that this mission is directed by God. It's directed by God. 
And I want to look there at verse 6 and, and see how they eventually end up in Philippi. So verse 6 says this, And they, they being Paul, Silas, and Timothy, this traveling apostolic group, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing to Mysia, they went down to Troas. You see what's happening here is the apostles, they're trying to be strategic. They're trying to go into these places. They're trying to bring the good news of Jesus to those who live in these different cities that are mentioned, but the Spirit keeps preventing them. By the way, it's a not-so-subtle shift here from Luke. He says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit prevented them, but then he says the Spirit of Jesus prevented them. You see, the mission is Jesus' mission. It's carried out through the Holy Spirit in ordinary people like you and I, but quite frankly, they had to be getting frustrated. They're trying to figure out, okay, are we supposed to go here? Are we traveling down south here? Are we going east? Where are we supposed to go? But the Spirit kept preventing them. We don't know what prevented it. It could have been a prophetic word. Silas is called a prophet earlier in Acts, so maybe he is giving a prophecy. Maybe it's circumstantial. Maybe the roads are closed. Maybe there's a weather pattern. Maybe there's a legal issue. Maybe just circumstances are dictating it. Maybe it's just an inward conviction or impression that ah, this is not what we're supposed to do. The text doesn't tell us what prevented them, but here's what's more important. The principle that we see here is this. God simply had other plans for them, right? This doesn't mean that strategy and logic and trying to be intentional doesn't matter, but it does remind us that sometimes what makes perfect sense to us is not always in the plans of God. Strategies, logic, all those things ultimately must be submitted to the sovereign plan and will of God who's directing all of these things. You see, even bigger than this, there ought to be a sense amongst us here at the King's Church that we can't possibly accomplish anything unless God shows up and blesses this work. We ought to have this desperation that, Lord, if you're not here, nothing is going to be accomplished, that whatever we are doing, Whatever plans or ideas we have, that they better be your plans and ideas, Lord. Otherwise, this is all futile. See, my son Caleb has recently gotten into puzzles, which is a big thing in our household. I actually proposed to my wife using a puzzle. It's a good story for later. So it's warmed our hearts that he's, he's doing these puzzles now. And he, unfortunately, has his dad's patience. And so he's working on the puzzle, and if we're, like, in the other room and he gets stuck on a piece the whole neighborhood knows it. I mean, he gets angry, he's like pounding it, he gets frustrated and upset, and then he'll run and find us. I need help, I need help with this puzzle. The difference is if he's doing it by himself, that's the reaction. If he's doing it when mom and dad are right next to him, much calmer. He'll just look up and say, help please. He doesn't freak out, right? Well, in the very same way, just as when mom and dad show up and help Caleb with the puzzle, the same thing will be true with us on our mission. Right? We ought to realize that our Father is right with us, and we ought to be submitting all that we're doing to him, and guess what? He will help us. He will help us do it. We ought to have this sense that God is near to us, that he is supporting what we're doing, that he's empowering it, and that it's his thing to begin with. And so they're seeking, they're trying to figure out, God, where are you calling us to? And then God gives them insight in verse 9. It says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding this, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
You see, Luke now joins the author of Acts, this apostolic team. He starts talking in the first person plural. Paul gets this vision and then they together discuss what it means. See, don't miss that aspect of the mission as well. We're called to link arms together, brothers and sisters, to carry the mission out into the world. This is not a solo activity. This is a family of God activity. And so Luke, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they get together. Paul tells them of the vision. And what do they conclude? Well, we need to immediately go. This is what God has called us to. Since the urgency there, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. And then look what the priority is placed on. Right? This is so important for the mission. The priority is that they must go and preach the gospel to them. You see, this group understands that the greatest need for those in Macedonia, before they even get there, before they get to know what all of their struggles and their hardships are, their greatest need, it's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, no matter what the church should be doing in mission, and there are plenty of things that we can and should be doing, the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel must be at the forefront. And the gospel, remember, is just this good news about Jesus It's the good news about the Savior King, the one who is God who has come in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary, atoning death in our place, and then was raised three days later. And they're coming with that message because that message is what brings about new life. Listen, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, taking care of widows and the fatherless and the motherless, that's all part of the mission. And all of those things are super important. But all of those things lack the power that the gospel brings. The gospel is the only thing that can bring someone from death to life. The good news about Jesus must be primary. It must drive all other missional activities. And that's exactly what happens in the story. They come and they plant themselves and they saturate that area with the good news of the gospel. But before we jump and look what this looks like on the ground, I want to remind us up top, This is so obviously and clearly God's mission, isn't it? I mean, he's closing doors, he's showing up in a vision, he's directing every step of the way, isn't he? Which means a few things for us, by the way. Number one, the pressure ought to be off. The pressure ought to be off us a little bit. See, sometimes when we have an opportunity to engage in a conversation, maybe it's a friend that we're getting to know and we feel like, okay, maybe it's time to to talk about Jesus with them, we can assume way too much pressure in that. We can take on the responsibility to try to accomplish what only God can accomplish. Listen, brothers and sisters, it's not up to us to convince somebody into salvation. In fact, you can't even do that. The best apologists, defenders of the gospel in the world share the gospel with people who don't respond to it. Listen, the pressure is off of us. We can and we should seek to be as effective as possible. We should be as skillful as we possibly can to connect whatever's going on in the lives of those around us to the good news about Jesus. But at the end of the day, the pressure isn't on us. We simply get to cast the seed of the gospel and we pray and we beg and we ask that God will move because this is his mission, this is his thing. So number one, the pressure's off. Number two, we should be seeking to follow him. We should be trying to actively engage God, where do you want me? You see, they're not passively just going through their missionary journey here. No, they are engaging with the Lord. They're trying to seek him. They're praying fervently. They're gathering together and discussing, does this make sense? Do you feel like God is leading us here? Are we seeing any fruit happening? They're trying to faithfully engage with the Lord. Now, a vision happens here. 
God can and has, and certainly if he wants to use a vision to lead us to some direction, he is free to do so. I'm going to argue, though, that that's not the normative way he acts. The normal way he acts is through the means of grace he's given us. You see, we can engage with God because he's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us the opportunity to pray, to engage with him, commune, have a conversation. And he's given us the gift of one another. And so my question for you is, are you engaged in the mission of God through those things? Let me just pick one, for example. What are you praying for? I'm assuming we're praying in that statement, of course, but when we are praying, what do our prayers sound like? Consider what Paul prays at the end of Colossians. I think this is something that we can just pray right from Scripture if this is something that's missing in our lives. He says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Then listen to what he says. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Do our prayers ever sound that way? You see, I think there's an invitation here for us here at the King's Church to simply pray more like that. To pray, God, show me where you've called me to engage in relationships. Show me where you've called to just start up a conversation that could get to Jesus. May you open a door for the word. Because it's in the word of God, in the proclamation of the gospel that God accomplishes his mission. So what do your prayers look like? Are we having these conversations together? Are we engaging with the Lord? If it's his mission, then we ought to be seeking to follow it as best as we can. Maybe we need to repent this morning for trying to accomplish this on our own. Maybe we need to repent this morning for trying to do the Lord's work in our own way instead of the Lord's way. Maybe we need to simply confess, God, we've disengaged completely from this. Stir back up my heart and my affections for you that it might spill out into the world. But at the end of the day, this mission is God's mission. The pressure's off. We get to be strategic, submit it all to God, and see what he might do. Secondly, as they land in Philippi, I want us to see that the mission is driven by divine encounters. Look at verse 11. It says, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on a Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. So they land in Philippi. Philippi is this Roman colony in Macedonia known for its Roman patriotism. What they would do is after these old Roman generals and warlords, when they would retire from service, oftentimes Rome would send them away to Philippi. By the way, it's always a good idea if you're trying to maintain the status quo to send the people who kill a lot of people away, right? You guys go over there to Philippi and hang out. And so Philippi is basically this little piece of Rome transplanted abroad. And as the missionaries follow God's leading, God puts three divine and opportunistic encounters right before them in the city. And I use that phrase, by the way, because that's precisely what's happened here in our midst, too. I mean, the way that so many of you have ended up here at the King's Church is through these divine encounters, through getting an Uber ride and someone invites you here, through seeing a t-shirt in a coffee shop, right, through a friend who just happened to remember you and invites you. These divine encounters are often the normal way that God advances his mission. So let's look at all three. The first is Lydia. 
The first is Lydia. So the context that's set up here, they find this prayer gathering of women. And it's happening outside the city. It's happening down by the river, which has different connotations today, but that's where they're at, right? They're down by the river, outside the city gates. And what that means is a few things. Number one, there's no synagogue in Philippi. You see, Paul would always start with the Jewish people in the synagogues, but he doesn't do that here. It's a glaring omission. There's no Jewish presence of at least 10 men, which is what was required to have a synagogue. Secondly, there's no Christian presence either. They're coming into Philippi, and they're seeking to engage people who have no background with this. And so he finds this group of women who are on the Sabbath day praying, and they go and they speak with those who are gathered. And Luke doesn't tell us what they're speaking about, but of course we know, right? He's pursuing meaningful conversations about the gospel. Surely Paul and his companions, they're listening to the women. They're looking for points of passion and pain. They're observing their worship, and then they're trying to bring the good news of Jesus into those conversations. And as they converse, a miracle happens. A miracle happens. Look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And here's the miracle. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they meet this woman named Lydia. Lydia is a businesswoman. She's a seller of purple goods. And Luke says she is a worshiper of God. That's actually a technical term. Sometimes it's referred to as a God-fearer. This was someone who believed and behaved like a Jewish person, renouncing paganism and polytheism, but they had not actually yet become a Jew themselves. And after all, there's no synagogue, so her options were limited. But as the gospel's being presented, this beautiful collision takes place. It's a beautiful collision between God's work and our work. You see, it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being shared. This is yet another reminder, brothers and sisters, that this is God's work. This is his mission. He is the one that brings this about. Listen, we share the gospel. We talk about Jesus, but at the end of the day, God must open our hearts to believe so that we might understand and respond appropriately. By the way, that's what we pray each and every week when we come into this space. I want to invite you to pray along with us. Every time we come here, we pray, God, may the gospel clearly be proclaimed. May we have conversations. May the preaching of God's word, may the songs that we sing, everything that takes place here, may the gospel be clearly proclaimed, and Lord, may you open hearts to believe. May you, as I pray each time, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that can understand the good news about Jesus. Because the fact that God opens hearts, it ought to give us a humble confidence. Right? We ought to be humble because if you're here and you're a Christian and you've put your faith in Jesus, guess what? It wasn't because you were awesome. It was because God, in his graciousness, in his kindness, opened your heart to believe the good news. That ought to give you humility, but at the same time, That ought to give you confidence, shouldn't it? I mean, that means even the person that we could never imagine placing their faith in Jesus can become a Christian just like that. God can open their hearts. He can give them spiritual insight. That ought to give us confidence, shouldn't it? I mean, listen, think about how you became a Christian. There are people who got saved reading those insane little tracts that people hand out at the grocery stores, right? 
How is that possible? Because God's the one who's saving. He's the one who's opening hearts, and we get to bear witness to it. That ought to give us a humble confidence. But in this moment, heaven rejoices. A sinner becomes a saint. Lydia is saved by the grace of Jesus, and her response is a beautiful evidence of this salvation. First of all, she's baptized. She's baptized, and it says her whole family. We don't know what makes up her whole family. I'm not about to jump into, is there infants there or not? We're not having that discussion this morning, right? But Lydia immediately begins sharing the gospel with her family, and they are baptized as well. And not only is she baptized, but then she opens her home. Yes, to the apostles, but if you skip ahead to verse 40, guess where the church in Philippi is meeting? It's meeting in Lydia's home. John Stott has this simple, profound observation. He says, once the heart is opened, the home is open too. You see, there's something about ordinary hospitality that's meant to cultivate the mission of God. It's meant to be the ground zero, the base camp, so to speak, where we invite outsiders in and they get to tangibly experience the love of Christ as we share the gospel, as we declare the gospel, as we display it to them. Her home becomes the ground base for all of this work in Philippi. So that's the first divine encounter. They're looking for this place where they can engage with the gospel, and God drops them into this prayer meeting, and Lydia is saved. But the divine encounters don't stop there. Look at the second one. It involves a slave girl. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now this is a different circumstance than Lydia. This time Paul and his companions, they're simply traveling through Philippi. They're on the road, they're on the way, and then God puts this slave girl in their path. And Luke tells us she has the spirit of divination. Just for fun, in the Greek, she has a python spirit. Lots of weird Greek mythology there. The idea is she's some sort of fortune teller. She's an ancient psychic of sorts, and she has the ability to proclaim what will happen in the future. And just like what happens today with fortune tellers and psychics, you don't get that information for free, right? You've got to obtain it via a transaction, and so she's making lots of money for her owners as she tells people their future. Now, what this girl is shouting out is fairly accurate, isn't it? In fact, it's entirely accurate. I mean, she's saying, listen, these men, they're the servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you salvation. But the text says that she did it over and over and over again. Not just for a few minutes, not just for a few hours every day. She's following along this new group into Philippi, and she's proclaiming this over and over again. Now, what she's saying is true, but what the evil spirit is doing is he's trying to discredit their reputation. He's trying to communicate something true, but associate it with something evil. And so because they are now being attached to her and her powers and whatever's going on with her possession there, it's discrediting the message. And by the way, none of this is by choice for this girl, of course. Right? She's a slave, after all. She's a slave both, apparently, physically and spiritually. She's in bondage in every way. And as she keeps this up, I love the honesty from Luke. He says, Paul doesn't say he's spirit-filled, doesn't say he has compassion. What does it say? He's annoyed, right? Paul's a normal guy like you and me. He's annoyed. 
But if we read that in the best light, he's annoyed with the spirit and he's had enough. And he says, all right, fine. And he exercises whatever that possession was just like that. You see, we're trained because of our kind of cultural points in movies and uh, pop culture that we often think of exorcisms being this really big event, right? It's a multi-day thing. There's weird, like, bending and stuff going on. You've got to pray really, really hard. You've got to do the magic potion and the formula. In the scriptures, the demons simply flee. At the name of Jesus, they're gone. It's a word, and the exorcism takes place. And that's exactly what Paul does for this slave girl. Now, Luke doesn't say that she automatically became a believer, but I have an awful hard time imagining she doesn't. In fact, she probably, at this moment, gets to know the name of the person who liberated her, which is not Paul, it's Jesus. In the name of Jesus, that demon is cast out. She'd probably now be abandoned by her owners. And so the slave girl who now has this freedom all of a sudden most likely would have been brought into the church and cared for and treated as a family member. So again, this is a divine encounter. They're simply going along their way and God puts this slave girl in their path. And by the way, he puts her in their path over and over and over again. Part of what the apostles simply need to do was open their eyes and say, okay, Lord, obviously you've brought this person into our life. Let us act in such a way. This act of kindness is what leads to most likely the salvation of this slave girl. But this act of kindness, it also leads to adversity. Look at verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. You see, those owners who had been exploiting this girl for selfish gain, they're now angry. So they bring them before the Roman authorities, and I don't know if you're sensing it yet, but Philippi's very, very Roman. And what they do is they begin to pit the Jews against the Romans. They say, us Romans, you know, we would never practice whatever foolishness is going on with this group, right? I mean, look at this group of Jews. They ought to be dealt with. They're disrupting the Roman way and the way that we ought to live in this society. And so they rile up not only the magistrates, but the crowds around them, and they're basically told that they're going to be beaten, that they're going to end up in prison, which is precisely what happens. When they inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now this beating would have been brutal, been physically horrible. I mean, their backs would have been all torn up and lacerated. Then it says they put their feet in stocks, which is not just to hold them in place. It was meant to inflict pain. And then they're taken to the innermost part of the prison where a few things are happening. Number one, it's dark and isolated. And then number two, it was just a little bit downhill from the rest of the cells that the human waste would run down into where they are. So the picture we have here is Paul and Silas, inner prison, human waste around them, essentially being tortured, but it's through that adversity that the third divine encounter takes place. Listen, sometimes in our lives we wonder what in the world is happening. Why are all these things taking place? Why is this suffering being allowed? Why am I being afflicted in this way? And sometimes, not always and not guaranteed, but sometimes the Lord is using us to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And that's exactly what happens here. 
Look at this third divine encounter with the Roman jailer, verse 25. Remember their scene, human waste around them, strapped in the inner cell, being tortured. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You see, they're in shackles, and their feet were in stocks, but their heart was as free as it could be, isn't it? I mean, what a beautiful picture. I mean, you know that one friend that's always humming, always whistling, always singing, right? I naturally can be a bit like Paul and the slave girl in that situation, but there's something admirable about that, isn't it? I mean, they're in the worst of scenarios, and yet they're singing, they're praying, they're fighting for joy. And they're in the inner part of the prison. It's not like this is a massive complex. Everybody can hear them. Luke makes that point clear. Rather than groaning about this injustice, they're praying. Rather than cursing God, they're singing hymns to God. And it's in this joyful worship in the midst of adversity that they have their eyes on what really matters most. You see, sometimes we can be distracted from what God has called us to because our eyes move from him onto our circumstances. They move from him onto the stuff around us that we need to deal with, but they might simply be distracting us from what matters most. Their eyes are on what matters most, and it literally changes the life of those who are in this prison. Verse 26, if you need evidence, these are divine encounters. Here's your best proof. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bonds were unfashioned. Unfast, sorry. Well, I can't speak this morning. Excuse me. Unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. See, the prisoners, they were his control. And if they left, if they escaped, it was his responsibility. So for a Roman soldier who would now be serving as the jailer, this is an admirable way to end. But yet, verse 28, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Which is important, by the way. It's not just Paul and Silas. They've convinced everybody else to stay. That's a profound point, right? If you're in a Roman prison like I just described, the doors fling open, and all of a sudden your chains are gone, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to take off, right? But there's something about the gospel presence of Paul and Silas that convinces not only them to stay, but the prisoners to stay as well. So the Roman jailer assumes what's already happened, and then this voice of grace cries out from the darkness, wait, don't kill yourself. We're still here. We're still here. And what are they doing? They're looking for an opportunity. See, they could have left. They could have gone on sharing the gospel, but they had this sense, no, no, we're right here right now. God wants to do something here in this prison. So they open their eyes to their circumstances, and they get to engage with the gospel with this jailer. So this jailer, overwhelmed, in verse 30, he, he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He might not even know all that's loaded behind that question. But he cries out in the moments of seeing this act of grace from these prisoners, what must I do to be saved? And so they say, quite clearly, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night. He washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. We get this beautiful picture of this rugged, harsh, hard, lot of life lived jailer gently washing the wounds of those that just suffered under his hand. 
And as he washes them, he is then beautifully washed in baptism. It's a beautiful picture, and this is the start of the church in Philippi. That's the church that God is planting in this city. Now, what can we learn from these divine encounters? See, we've already established that God's the one who's orchestrating all this. It's his mission. He is in charge. He's bringing all this about. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means that we ought to put ourselves in a position to experience these opportunistic encounters. You see, Paul and his companions, they're purposely trying to put themselves in the way of God's activity. So first, they go to a group of women who are obviously seeking. Right? They're meeting on the Sabbath. They're trying to understand who God is. They're praying to him. So they go there, but then the Lord provides the opportunity. Then in the situation of the slave girl and the Roman jailer, they simply open their eyes to who is already around them. The slave girl continually follows them, so they act towards her. The Roman jailer is right in front of them, so rather than running away, they're seeking to share the good news of Jesus with him. You see, there's nothing special about these moments except that God orchestrated them, and they were in a position to bear witness to the gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, we can do the very same thing today. Rather than rushing through our routine, what if we stopped and we looked around? What if rather than staring at our phone, our first moment of boredom, we looked up and saw people created in God's image all around us? What if we were a regular in a location, got to know the people who lived there, who worked there, and began bringing the good news of Jesus into that space? What if we, like Lydia and the Roman jailer upon salvation, immediately opened our homes up? We invited the outsider into a family. We thought about our neighbors and those around us and how we can be hospitable to them. Listen, hospitality doesn't mean entertainment. Hospitality means embracing the outsider, bringing them into a home because that's the picture of the gospel, isn't it? That's precisely what God has done for us. And listen, as we go about our days, Jesus has already gone before us. Remember the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he promises to be with us always to the end of the age. We might feel awkward. We might feel inadequate. We might not know where to start. But listen, there is literally nowhere that we could go that Jesus hasn't gone before us. There's nowhere that we can go where Jesus isn't presently with us right in that moment. So as we go, we bring the gospel with us. I love how Jeff Vanderstelt describes this. He says, God isn't necessarily looking for us to try harder or to add more ministry demands on our lives. He wants us to walk in greater awareness and dependency on him in the everyday stuff of life and engage what we're already doing with gospel intentionality. This isn't additional, this is intentional. It's not about adding more to our busy lives, it's about engaging all of life for his glory. It's about fully realizing we have his power because he is present in us, in all that we do. Brothers and sisters, the pressure is off, but what a privilege that we get to bring the gospel into the everyday stuff of life and point people to the king, point people to the savior who has come. That's what we get to participate in. But quickly and lastly, the mission is defined by unity and diversity. I don't want to overlook what's just happened here. Because as we look at the beginning of the church in Philippi, it's, it's ridiculous who makes up the first church. I mean, think about the diversity of people that are gathered here now. You have this traveling apostolic group, which is, by the way, two Jewish men. Then you've got Timothy, whose mom was Jewish, dad was Greek. He gets circumcised at the beginning of chapter 16. Didn't have time for that. That's a fun story. 
And then Luke is with them. He's likely a Gentile doctor. And then consider who they run into in these divine encounters. I mean, there is very few scenarios in which Lydia, the slave girl, and the Roman jailer would ever even be around one another. Just think through some categories for a moment. They couldn't be further apart racially, socially, or spiritually. Think racially for a minute. Lydia is a Gentile from Asia, and she's doing business in Philippi. We don't know where the slave girl is from, but she likely was brought there not by her choice. She's probably a foreigner who is now under Roman rule and oppression. And then we have the Roman jailer, who is more than likely a retired Roman soldier or army veteran. He was a Roman through and through. He would have been ensuring that the Roman Empire was true to its values. He would have been ensuring that what's happening to the slave girl would continue. But yet racially, that's the makeup of the first church in Philippi. See, each of them have now been made citizens of the kingdom of heaven through the grace of Jesus. But not just racially, consider socially. Lydia would have been highly successful. A seller of purple cloth, you know who wears purple cloth? Royalty. Why is she hanging out in Philippi? All the old royalty was sent there. See, she had a lucrative thing going. She had a house big enough to host the whole church. Right? Lydia is well off. She's wealthy. She's successful. She's a businesswoman. She's engaging in lucrative deals. Socially, she's on the high end of the spectrum. The slave girl, the bottom. She's oppressed. She's possessed. She would have been at the absolute bottom of the social stratosphere. Then the Roman jailer would have been a middle-class citizen. He had freedoms and rights that were available to him. But don't forget, too, the Jewish influence here. You see, there's a common Jewish prayer in the first century. It's recorded for us in history. You can look it up. Oftentimes, Jewish men would wake up and they would pray this prayer. They would give thanks to God that you have not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And that's literally the first church, isn't it? I mean, this is insane what's happening. Racially, they're different. Socially, they're different. And then spiritually, look at where the gospel meets each of them. See, each of them spiritually are in a different place. Lydia is probably a good person. She's going to a prayer meeting on Sunday morning, right? She's morally upright. She's probably religious. She's looking for what kind of involvement she can get in. But here's the thing. She still needed the gospel, right? She came to church. She knew what was going on there as much as she could in Philippi, but Jesus met her right there in the pew, so to speak. That's some of your story, isn't it? Grew up in church, heard the gospel over and over again, and guess what? Jesus met you in church, right where you were at. You thought you were fine, but you didn't know you needed the grace of Jesus. The slave girl is psychologically oppressed. She's simply broken. She has an evil spirit. She's been abused. She's in a double bondage spiritually and to her earthly masters. She's trapped, but yet Jesus met her right where she's at. And that's some of your stories too, isn't it? You were in the deep end, you were trapped, you were stuck, you were engaged in something you could not get out of, and Jesus' grace met you right there. Then we have the Roman jailer, lived a rugged and hard life. He had done some things and he had seen some things if you were in the Roman army. There was no way around it. You think of our soldiers that come back and have PTSD, I got to imagine some of that's happening for him. He's probably angry and bitter. When we engage in things that are hard and the horrible things he probably had to do, he probably tries to become callous to it all. But yet he encounters this group of people who are singing in the inner cell. They're praising God, and when they have a chance to run free, they stay. And they stay so that they can love him. You see, he, all of a sudden, that hard outer shell is just simply melted by grace. And he desires the peace 
that they have in their adversity. All of a sudden, this hard, rugged man is broken down and asks, what can I do to be saved? Invites them into his home. You see, the gospel can meet us there as well. We've had a hard life. We've sinned in all sorts of ways. We've become callous to it, but yet Jesus' grace can meet us right there as well. You see, what I want us to see in these divine encounters is just strictly and sheerly the power of the gospel. Because all three of them, Lydia, the slave girl, and the Roman jailer, all three of them are changed by the same gospel and welcomed into the same church. Which means this, the gospel is big enough to save them all. The gospel is big enough to save anyone no matter where they might be at. The gospel creates a family out of people who have no business hanging out with each other. That the world would look at and say, what is it that's connecting you guys? Why are you going over to her house? Why do you guys get together each week and open the Bible and pray? What's going on here? See, D.A. Carson says this. He says, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or any of the sorts. Christians come together not because they form a natural collection, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. And guess what? If we want to be on mission together, a whole bunch of people who have no business hanging out with each other, love each other in that way, powerful proclamation of the unity of the gospel to the world around us. You see, this is a hope that the world needs. We live in a divided age. All of those pressure points that these three would have felt are felt the same way for us today. There are barriers between one another, but the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And salvation is a miracle. It's an act of God that's a miracle. And because it's a miracle, anybody can get in on it. It can happen to anybody. And the gospel is what tells us the truth from Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And us living as a diverse family, unified together as brothers and sisters by the blood of Christ, is one of the most powerful acts of mission we can give to the world. So, are you engaging in this? Are you trusting that God is directing all of this? And are we purposely seeking diversity to show the unity of the good news of the gospel? That is the call of the church. Let's inhabit that call together. Let's pray.